Hi, howdy and hello there, good brothers. Your old pal Clayton Patterson down here at 161 Essex Street, uh, holding down the fort with um, 8 Ball Radio. And I'm here with Eden, and as a guest we have today, Nick Boobash from Pittsburgh. How you doing, Nick? Hi, Clayton. Okay, Clayton, how you doing? I'm all right. So, um, actually, it's very interesting because, um, you know, I met you through Tom DeVita. And right, exactly. Many years, many years ago. Yeah, uh, actually, that's right. Many, many years ago. And um, so I just wanted to point out a couple of things. Uh, one is is that um, I did a little thing the other day for uh, a tattoo magazine called TTT. This guy, uh, uh, Nick Sh uh, uh, Schomberger, is the editor of it. Right. So I wrote, uh, I don't know, four or 500 words, something short about uh, DeVita. And in that, uh, you know, covered you know, a lot of the territory. And talked about, you know, what a creative soul Tom was and how he, you know, advanced so much the whole uh, tattoo thing. But nobody really has caught on to it yet. So a couple of the points that I made was uh, one that um, certainly with Malone, which I believe, is uh, I traced Malone and Kate Hillebrand back to DeVito. Yeah, it, I, yeah, I would do that. Yeah, I mean. Malone for sure. But then, considering Malone lived with Kate, and they were both into tattooing, and they both worked around the um, the folk art show, Kate likes to sort of suggest she put hooked the whole thing up together. But um, or she did the whole thing. Her claim was she worked down the street by the Museum of Modern Art in the design department, and because uh, the folk art museum at that time on Fifty Third Street was just down the street from the Museum of Modern Art, so you kind of had to. Yeah, I remember. So you have the beginning of this concept of uh, Museum of Modern Art in the block, the uh, uh, Folk Art Museum on the block, and then across the street you had the Design Museum, the Craft Museum. So it's just kind of interesting because um, when in the beginning of this, so we started off, Tom starts tattooing, Tom being in the au contraire as he is and always was, he starts off tattooing in 1961, supposedly the day tattooing became illegal, right? That's what he said, yeah. Yeah, so I'll accept that. So then um, um, he starts tattooing. Then we, we skip ahead to 1971, and that's the Folk Art Museum show. And then we skip ahead after that to 1972 when Ed Hardy starts showing up in New York City. And Diane, right. Diane Hansen, Bobby Hansen's wife, uh, the filmmaker, who uh, used to... Uh, remembers being over there because uh, Bobby uh, Hansen got tattooed by uh, Reverend Tyler, who was a neighbor of Tom's and tattoo artist. Yeah, I was, uh, I was tattooed by Reverend Tyler as well. And also, uh, we'll get to, uh, you know, then we had uh, Tom. So it's just interesting because uh, Hardy's hanging around uh, DeVita's. Uh, Diane Hansen's there, and she hears Tom, or not to Tom, but to Ed Hardy talking about how he's going to raise tattooing to the level of fine art. So that conversation is beginning way back when. Right. And eventually he does that. And so it's just interesting how that dichotomy between like the Museum of Modern Art and the Folk Art Museum now kind of starting to amalgamate. And part of that was, uh, was uh, Ed's vision and dream. And one thing I always really respected about Ed, one of the many things, he's obviously Mr. Tattoo America, his contribution is huge, but the thing that I've always respected about uh, Ed, for me, the most, was he's always acknowledged Tom as changing his life. And he says... Well, that, exactly. And, yeah, exactly. And, and I think it was Tom that was initially bringing fine art 
into tattooing, and um, uh, I think he was sort of doing it inadvertently. Uh, uh, but uh, Tom was like, uh, you know, he was like, Tom was influenced a lot by the uh, abstract expressionist back in those days, and um, he was also influenced a great deal by um, uh, the guy that did the boxes. What the hell was his name? Um, Joseph Cornell. Uh, Joseph Cornell. Yeah, right. Yes. And when. You know, when I was there with Tom, like, we were always going to go visit Joseph, Joseph Cornell, but we never got there. Cornell was still alive, and you could go visit him, but we never did. But it was Hardy, I think, that saw that what was DeVito was doing, and he freely admitted in the DeVito Unauthorized book that uh, that we, that Tom and I put together in 2003, in Hardy's essay, he freely admits that when he met Tom DeVito, it actually changed the way he thought about tattooing. And uh, if you read the essay, uh, he went back to California, closed down his street shop, and he opened up, uh, I think it was Tattoo Du Realistique, it was called. And he opened up a second story, second oh, floor, can you repeat, private tattoo shop. Can you repeat that name again? I think it was, I, uh, what, Hardy's Shop? Yeah. I, I think he called it Du Realistique. Oh, Du Realistique. A little bit of a, yes. a pizzazz. Yeah, a little bit of a little little French in there, you know, mm -hmm. to give it a little class, you know. That's right. So, so, the thing uh, with, with you, know. you is, you were the only person he really broke in as a tattoo artist. Right, exactly, yeah. He broke me, I mean, you know, he took me under his wing. I was kind of a lost all the time, you know, but I still, I drew my, I always drew my whole life. And when, uh, you know, when I, was, when I went up to see him, I knew that I was home. And that was the very early 70s, if it was 1970, 71, something like that. So uh, Malone had all, was already around, and Hardy was already around, so it may have been a little, a little later, 72. 72 is when but Hardy Malone says he came to New York. Okay, so that's when I was around. Yeah, I was around uh, that time. That's when I was there with Tom. But, you know, I did a whole bunch of drawings of dragons for Tom when he saw that. Then that's when he decided, you know, he told me. The way he told me was, he said, I'll remember my whole life. He said, you can come up here and you can hang around anytime you want. That's what he said. You can come around anytime you want, which was him saying to me, you know, like, come around and hang around, you know. Yeah. Once he saw my drawings, you know. And uh, so that was the beginning of me and Tom, you know. And then I met Hardy back then and I met Malone, you know. But I didn't really interact with those guys. So tell me about, oh, what do you remember about Malone being there? I don't remember a whole lot about Malone. Malone, I met back then, but I didn't really get to know him until years later. I sort of, I got to know him pretty well, you know. Uh, but uh, I remember him being in and out, and uh, he was a lot of fun, good sense of humor, you know. And uh, I remember asking Tom, like, you know, like if Tom broke me in, that's the way we used to say it, break, break somebody in rather than apprentice them. Uh, like, and I had to fall he broke in Tom, and uh, 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 Paul Rogers broke in Huck Spaulding. And I said, well, who broke in uh, Malone? And, and Tom thought for a second, and he said, well, you know, I don't, nobody broke in Malone. He said, Malone came up and watched me get tattooed by Huck Spaulding and took photographs of me being tattooed, and then one day he says, oh, I can do this goddamn stuff. He said, man, he just got some machines, and he started tattooing. 
so he broke himself in. Well, the reason the reason I disagree with that, and you know, with Tom, it takes a long time to find things out because they're always kind of you have right. to pry it out of him. But one thing yeah. I did pry out was that uh, Malone had actually he allowed Malone to watch him for a week. Yeah. Well. Okay. Well, that was all part of it. Yeah, and that's how you learn by watching. So yeah. if you sit there for a week. And you're watching the guy tattoo, and obviously he's talking you through some of the tattoo. That to me was a was a pivotal point. I mean, it's uh, Tom did, yes. Tom didn't talk while he tattooed. He would talk afterwards. Yeah, but so he wouldn't tell you. He wouldn't tell you anything. Not much. He was very closed mouth about everything. You know, little by little, he'd tell you a little tiny secret of some kind, something about one color. Or something about, I remember, I remember like, I went over to his house one time late at night, like, for him late at night was about 8 o'clock, because he went to sleep real early. Well, that's because he, he started tattooing at like 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, he, started, he opened his studio at 6 in the morning. And closed at noon. He closed at 3 in the afternoon, yeah. Yeah. So to he watch somebody... That way he didn't get any drunk. <laughs> yeah, because one of the things with tattoo artists is that... The, you know, they talk about how they learn is they would go to somebody who they really liked as a tattoo artist and get tattooed and watch him. So to right. sit, to sit right. there and be able to watch a guy for a week, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's an education. Yeah, and it he, is an education. Yeah. And the other thing is, is that, uh, do you remember Kate being around at that time? I don't remember Kate. I've never met Kate. And the only time I've ever, I've ever seen Kate is on, in pictures. I never actually met her. I heard about her, you know, and I actually remember, I remember actually one time Malone complaining about the fact that, you know, he had set up a tattoo shop in there, they were living together in their apartment, and how some of the guys kept hitting on Kate at the time, you know, and it was bothering him, he didn't like it, you know, that he didn't think the shop should be in the apartment like that, you know. And that was but in that, his... That's all I recall. And that was in his little, apartment in New York. Yeah, he was a photographer, and then he was walking around the streets, and he ran into this guy who was all tattooed, who turned out to be Tom DeVita, and started hanging out with him. Yeah, yeah, and you know what he was photographing? He was photographing grass growing up between cement cracks. Yeah, that's right, sidewalk cracks. And he got all the way down to the Lower East Side, and he was walking down 4th Street, and he saw Tom sitting there, and that's, that's where it started. That's how it happened. And he was, he was a photographer at Fillmore, the Fillmore East. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I don't know that, but I do know he was a photographer. Yeah. Now, you know, the other contradiction, because most of this is sort of like shoveled with contradictions about, and it's true, you know, the, the story is, at that time, if you were in a cab, the cab wouldn't take you down where Tom was because it was too dangerous. Right, a lot of yeah. A lot of drugs, very dangerous. On the other hand, it was one of the most highly creative places in the world. I mean, you had a slugs which would block away, which from the 60s up until about the mid-70s or so, I mean, what became one of the historic jazz places in the history of jazz, and that was a block away from Tom's. Yeah. And then people that yeah. would know that knew Tom were like Lionel Ziprin, uh, the Kabbalist, writer, um, uh, Harry Smith, uh, the musicologist, uh, turns out to be people consider him to be the American genius. He did the Folkways record, which is considered a landmark in American music history. And he had Bill Heine, who Lionel considers to be one of the best musicians, uh, magicians in the 20th century. 
So tell us a story. Yeah, I knew, I knew Bill real well. So tell us some stories about Bill. Well, I mean, uh, he, he was just uh, uh, the most, one of the most uh, engaging people in terms of uh, just simply being like a, 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 he had a, a pleasant and an attractive personality. He would interact with you all the time. He had plenty of great stories. He always had a sketchbook with him. He wasn't just a jazz musician. He was also an artist. Right. And his sketchbook was loaded with drawings and all kinds of things. Poetry, he wrote poetry. And, you know, I mean, uh, he was really an interesting cat. I really liked him. And he used to hang around with another guy that was always there named Bill Heine. Or uh, uh, Bill, um, um, uh, Danny Bear. And uh, Danny Bear, what was interesting about him was he had, uh, um, uh, uh, I can't recall... Uh, but he had an arrested development of a, of a certain disease, a, a wasting disease, was supposedly the only known case that was on the books at the time. But him and, him and uh, Bill Heine and Danny Bear used to hang around together all the time, and they called themselves the Bear Heine Group. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, <laughs> no. and they were both fun to help, and they both had giant personalities, and they were so much fun to be around. You know, I mean, it was a lot of fun. Those guys were a lot of fun. You know, and, um, now and the there thing was also, you know, Mac, you know, John McKenna was always there. There was Frank the Piercer, who was getting, who was piercing way before, when, you know, whatever. And, of course, there was Reverend Dick. Dick didn't hang around with us, but, you know, there was Dogman Bobby. Uh, so they were, they were piercing then? They were, uh, well, Frank was, yeah. Uh, piercing, uh, uh, he was calling himself Frank the Piercer. And he was there, and there was another guy who used to hang out called Frenchy, was always around there, you know. Frenchy had a, 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 um, a convertible he used to drive around in, you know. And, and they were all uh, characters. They all had, like, you know, engaging personalities. They all interacted. They all had great senses of humor. They had all suffered through the very dark periods in their lives, you know. And uh, yeah, they were, it was just delightful uh, group of people to be around, you know, and I was kind of like a rookie with those guys, you know, they used to like to have me around, and, you know, I'm always joking around, too, you know that, Yeah. And, you know, so so we always we always got along, you know, it was always a lot of fun for me, it was a great childhood. <laughs> so, were, were people actually being pierced at Tom's? No, not at Tom's, no, no, they franked in his own, you know, and back in those days, it was mostly, it was a very, like, uh, kind of a closed circle of people. That's why I'm asking. There was a lot of, like, uh, S&M people and stuff like that, you know. So was Frank gay? I don't think Frank was gay, but I, I can't tell you that for sure. I mean, the reason I asked I that know. is because, you know, there was uh, the piercing world was kind of like, you know, Jim Ward and all of that. And there was, you know, Sayers yeah. did. And there was kind of a, a you know, a club all around uh, America, but it was mostly a gay club. And that was part of the separation between piercing and tattooing was that basis. Yeah, and those are the guys that, those are, a lot of those guys were the guys that Hardy was being brought into New York to tattoo, were those people, you know. Well, you see, Hardy used to, over by West 4th Street, Hardy used to go over and tattoo. There was a gay scene there, and Hardy went over and tattooed. And Tom, who's obviously not uh, gay, uh, he would go over there as well and hang out. And so did um, the photographer, um, what's his name? You know, the photographer uh, who always hang out with them. Um, I'll think of it in a minute. 
But there was also uh, the person. So it's interesting. I asked that because you're talking a, about Bill Hanson. I'm talking Hanson, about Bobby Hanson. No, I'm talking. Oh, well, he was a photographer, and filmmaker as well. No, I'm talking about Wyatt, John Wyatt. Oh, John Wyatt. Yeah, right. So John he was. Wyatt, yeah. He was over. This is the early '80s. So he was over in the West Village with Tom. And you have to remember that overlap at that time. There was also Ruth Martin and uh, Marcia Tucker and and those people. But like John said to to Ed uh, to uh, Tom, he said, "Well." These people, they're all gay. Are they all gay? He asked Tom, are they all gay? And Tom says, if they walk like a duck and quack like a duck, it's probably a duck. So, <laughs> so, so, so Tom was okay with it, you know. Because yeah, he, was, he didn't care. He didn't care. And you remember Freddie, no. what was his name, Freddie Clusen? Yeah, absolutely. He was like the door guy, right? He was the door guy, and you know what? Freddie Clusen did a lot of did almost well. I, in fact, I want to say I want to say that he did all of the flash drawings for Tom because Tom really wasn't a drawer, but Tom was an enhancer of drawings. Right. And Freddie would do all the basic drawings. Freddie had some art school training, I think, that he got after the Korean War. He used it as a, you know, the, uh, the, the they would send you back to school. You know, the military. Right. Um, uh, yeah, education that, that, fund. You know. That's how Tyler went to um, the Chicago Art Institute, was from a GI Bill after World War II. Right, after World War II, right. And, well, I think Tyler was in the Korean War. I Who? Think oh, you think Tyler? Well, I, I remember sort of the stories of being in Tokyo or in Japan after the war and sort of throwing around the Japanese money. And well, then you, you may very well be right. You know, you may very well be right, but... Yeah, but I think he was also in the Korean War. He was like in that period. Like my father was both in the Korean War and the World War Two. He was one of those lucky guys that okay. fell into that group of people that was young enough to be in both of the wars. You know, right. so he may have very well been in. It. And you know, Dick Tyler's teeth were all gold. Every one of them, every last one of them. They say if you had them all knocked out, and uh, I, I don't know whether it was during the war, or because of the war, or something happened in the war, but. The government replaced them all, so he got a, he got them all made in gold. They were solid gold. But you see, if they're all gold, then you're supposed to mean you can never tell a lie. <laughs> I don't know if that was true, but with Dick, but maybe. But it was just interesting. <laughs> just he to, told some good stories, I can tell you that. Yeah, a lot of good stories. And just to sort of digress again for a minute, the reason I asked about Frank the Pearson gay and like that, I just wonder if he wasn't also that connection to the gay West Village and the tattoo scene. That's the reason I asked that. Well, he may have been. I mean, it's hard to tell. I didn't, uh, Frank didn't come around a lot. He wasn't one of the inner circle of guys, you know, Bill Heine and, and uh, you know, uh, Freddie Cluson and, and all those guys. He was kind of peripheral, but he did come around occasionally, you know. Because also from that time, you had Dave Slack, who was tattooing in the Upper West Side, and it might have been right. more... Right, he called himself Condor. Yeah. What's that? Dave Slack called himself Condor. Really? So he yeah, must have been connected to Phil Sparrow then, because Phil Sparrow, the guy that uh, broke in Ed Hardy, he always uh, gave everybody a bird name. You know, Cliff Raven. No, all the gay, all the gay tattooers had bird names. Yeah. There was the Cliff Raven and uh, Phil Sparrow. Right. And uh, Condor, and there was, um, you know, was any of them that had, uh, in fact, uh, Mike Malone, originally took the name Macaw, he called himself Macaw, until he found out that the bird name was like a secret 
thing that they did among themselves to, to tell each other that they were gay, right. and then he changed his name to Rolla from Macaw. But his original tattoo name was Macaw, his handle, you know. When they took names back then, you know. Yeah, yeah. The beater didn't take a name, you know. When I remember asking Tom when I was a kid, you know, when he was teaching me how to tattoo, it was on. It was unspoken that he was teaching me, but he was teaching me. I said, what do you think I should call myself, you know, as a tattoo artist? And he said, Nick Boobash. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That sounds like Tom. So I stuck with that. That's the name I stuck with. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, like back at that time, yeah, okay, we could call it really bad ghetto, but, you know, there was so much art in that taking place around there. And Bill Heine... At that time, like I say, he was—he's he, kind of credited uh, by some for sure as a person who started the whole tie-dye uh, movement because he had cut his finger and wrapped a, uh, yeah, a, yeah. a sheet around it and it unfolded the sheet and it had that sort of tie-dye. Right, right, right. They say he's the one that started tie-dye. He was also uh, Bob Dylan's tambourine man. Was he? He was the tambourine. Yeah. Because Mr. Tambourine, tambourine was a junkie. No, well, I. I Bill Heine was a junkie. Yes, he was. He was first a speed freak and then a junkie, or a speed freak and yeah, a junkie, yeah. but he did both. Yeah, he was a junkie, yeah, yeah. And, uh... Um, I mean, until later in his life he quit, you know, but early on he was. They yeah. were all junkies back then, because they were all, they, they all the jazz musicians were using junk because they thought that the, the, the junk was the secret behind Charlie Parker. Right. And they all wanted to be as good as Charlie Parker was. Right. Charlie Parker was a junkie, and he became a junkie because he broke his arm when he was a kid. And he was given morphine, yeah. and uh, and he went from there. You know, so they were all taking junk because they thought that was would enhance their their uh, ability to play jazz. You know, their, but of course they were all wrong. <laughs> yeah, and then the other thing that came along was speed. Now a lot of the speed at that time wasn't necessarily methamphetamine. A lot of them were um, pills, and it used to be yeah, legal no, to do but, pills. I remember Lionel Zippert yeah. used to do speed, but he said, I never did any illegal drugs. When I did speed, uh, it was legal. And the same with acid at that time. Acid was, was legal for a long time, so people would do yeah, acid. acid was legal. Because Timothy Leary yeah. and that came to Lower East Side, and they spread that whole thing. But, uh, yeah, and they used to take those uh, benzodrine inhalers, you know, for your nose. Right. You had a cold benzodrine. And they would poppers. break those open and soak, soak them in tea. It was add a menthol flavor to it, you know. They would soak them in tea, and that had speed in it. Those things had speed in it. Right. Those benzene, benzene inhalers. And you see the uh, other thing that kind of popular. You can oh, still buy paracoric also uh, uh, over the counter. Huh. Back in those days. And you used to have bennies. They used to sell bennies everywhere, gas stations, you know, just to keep you awake. Truck drivers. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wakey, wakey, Benny, uh, Benny. And the other thing about uh, Bill was, and the heroin, is that there was also that whole mysticism and, and black magic part. You know, Crowley was, was heroin. There was that whole sort of overlap. And Bill used to scare a lot of people with the magic. And a lot of people were very afraid of him. And there was a person by the name of Irving Rosenthal that wrote a book. And in the book, there was a number of characters. And one of the characters was DeVita. Uh, not DeVita, but uh, Bill Heine. And he wrote about this yeah, frightening magician. And then uh, Irving Rosenthal eventually moved to San Francisco. But that book is, uh, is, uh, had the story in there of Bill Heine, who was the junkie, uh, the black magician. Yeah. And so uh, 
Yeah, so for you, being at Tom's was really kind of a elevating experience because you also, I mean, you've got an art education. I mean, you worked for uh, uh, Peter Max. So tell yeah, us. And, and I grew up drawing. You know, my mother was an artist, so, you know. Was she an opera and singer or something? Pardon me? Was your mother an opera singer or something? Or a, a Broadway? That was my a, grandma. A, that was her mother. Her mother. Okay. That was my grandmother. My grandmother and my daughters, 50th generation, yeah, opera. But, but my mother was a graphic artist, you know, and an entertainer. She, and she sang, and she was a performer. She did a lot of plays and things like that, you know. And so was my uncle as well. He was a violinist, but there was a lot of music and entertaining in my family, you know. But, um, uh, yeah, I always drew. I was encouraged to draw because I could do that. That was one thing I could do. I was dyslexic. But I could draw, and my, so my mother fostered that. So by the time I got to Davida, I had already been drawing my whole life. Not that I was a great drawer, because there were long periods of time when I wouldn't draw, because I was using narcotics at the time myself when I met him, you know. So things flacked off, you know, in terms of my in industry. Did you, you know? sort of pick so, up on the drugs around Tom's place, or where did you pick up on the heroin thing? Uh, the heroin thing started in Peter, at Peter Mack. Really? Uh, yeah, I met a, one of the guys that I was working with there, there, a Puerto Rican kid, uh, brought some heroin to work one day, and I snorted it, and that was the end of that. I was off and running, you know, but, you know, Peter Max was slightly before Tom DeVita, before I met Tom DeVita. I was working with Peter Max. And, and everybody was high on something back in those days. You know, everybody was. It was just, like, endemic, you know. Mm -hmm. So, Like I say, at that, that time, know. a lot of the drugs were legal, like some of the speed. Some of the things were legal, but the pot, of course, wasn't legal, and that was, like, a big crime, you know. Yeah, pot was a big one. And uh, heroin was illegal, of course, you know. But there was a big drug scene going on all over the place. Yes. Yeah, so Bob did not use drugs. He used speed for a while. And then he drank coffee, real strong coffee, and then he quit that, and he was just clean, completely, completely clean for most of the time I knew him, almost completely, from the day I met him. He never used any drugs. He didn't even really drink, did he? He never drank. Not even a glass of wine. I don't think I ever saw him drink. Maybe no. I think I saw him drink a beer one time, maybe. But uh, he was not a drinker. And now, the there was enough going on with him, and they said he didn't need to have any enhancements, you know. <laughs> well, the other thing I was wondering is is that uh, the, the person by the call, Bear, uh, Dorothy, uh, Dorothea, uh, Reverend Tyler's uh, wife, her last name was Bear. Were they related? Right. No, they were not related, no. They were not related at all, no. And when, and, and when you joined... Uh, um, uh, Uranian Phalanstry, of which I was a member. Uh, actually, Dorothy Bear, her name was Madame Reeb, and uh, uh, Dick Tyler was uh, Reverend Reedlider, Reedlider, our Tyler is backwards, and I was in Hushabub and Davida, I can't remember, but he would write your name backwards. He would take a Polaroid picture of you, write your name backwards underneath it, and he would pin it up in the Phalanstry. Uh, you know, the, in the church itself. And uh, so, yeah, they used to call her Madame Reed. She taught uh, wood, uh, I think woodwork at uh, um, 
What's the college here? It's a very well-known college. Either college or, or a really high-end uh, private school. But it was yeah, no, it was, it was, yeah, it was a college. If, I, if you said it, I would know. You know, it's very well-known there. SVA? No, no, no. Uh, I don't know. I can't remember now. But I, if you said it, I would know. You know. Yeah. But um, it was a very well-known school. And that, it really, she's the one that supported supported them. I don't think Dick actually brought in any money uh, at the time. But you know, and the I one... I don't know... I don't know what Dick did for a living, actually, other than be an artist. Uh, he's made sold prints. He made sold wood prints. He did poetry. Yeah, he did woodblock yeah. prints, and he would sell those. He had a push cart where he would take it out in the street, and he would park it in front of Judson Church. And this is a time at Judson Church that it was really highly active. And Tyler was also very uh, instructive and important to uh, Klaus Oldenburg's history. Now, Oldenburg will admit that, which is kind of like the Ed Hardy thing. It's amazing that he will, but he does. And, no, uh, they were roommates. They were roommates. They lived, they lived together. Yeah, they, uh, it, it's possible. At that time, I think uh, also uh, Oldenburg was, was married, and then and Tyler hooked him up with an apartment because he had been a... Oh, he was a super of buildings. That's right. He was also a super of the building. And that's how he was able to take over those buildings because they had been owned by a, a, a Jewish uh, uh, Hasid. It was a synagogue. Yes. No, it was a synagogue. Yeah, and he, he was the caretaker care of the synagogue. Yeah, and the, and the Shabbos the boy. Uranian. Yeah, that's where, that's where Dick put the, uh, the phalantry, you know, the, the Iranian phalantry was in that synagogue because if the, the neighborhood got too dangerous and the... And the um, uh, Rabbi wanted to move his congregation to another building, and he gifted that building to Dick right. because Dick took uh, Dick Tyler took care of the building so well that the uh, he was he didn't sell it to him; he gave it to him. And then Dick, since it was already a place of worship, Dick changed it. You know, started his own religion there. You know, his own uh, group. You know, I guess it was a religion. Yeah, the Iranian phallistry, and he called himself uh, Reverend R. O. Tyler. Reverend, yeah, Reverend Dick, and, and it was a, and he he was very clever with it too. He, he used it as a tax exemption. I think he tax married exempt because it was religious. You know? He would marry people as well, right? Yeah, he did all kinds of goddamn things. You know, I mean, he he was like, yeah, he did all kinds of things. You know, I mean, awesome. that, that mantra that he tattooed on my arm was tattooed in the, uh, different colors. Each it was the Amani Pati Me Hum. Uh, mantra and each letter is a different color and each color had something to do with uh, keeping me in a healthy manner. It had something to do with either uh, a color that would uh, would relate to my spiritual or my physical health in some way or another. So they were significant in that way. It wasn't just a tattoo of the mantra. It also had a touch of the Iranian phalanxy in it, you know. And um, uh, we that church, we celebrated every holiday of every religion. So there was always a celebration going on. You know, there was like music. They we had, we had music group. Uh, we had you know music times when everybody would get together. There was everything that you could make noise with. People would think things to bang on. You know, with a stick or whatever or rubber band things. I mean, it was crazy. It was like a it was a cacophony. Was what it was. You know, like the group place was like the, the church was like just packed full of people and you know it was nuts it was it was fun you know it's fun 
Well, some of the people that I mean, came... a lot of it was meant to be fun, too, you know. It wasn't, like, serious. It was serious sort of with tongue-in-cheek, you know, in a sense. You know, but uh, he had a whole philosophy, you know. And I can remember reading pieces of it, and, you know, but uh, right now I couldn't tell you a damn thing if I had to. Get a gun to my head, I couldn't tell you. I just can't remember. You know, but I think it's out there somewhere written down, you know. Well, it was heavily, it's not that much writing, actually, but it was heavily influenced by uh, Buddhism. Yeah, Buddhist, yeah, and I think also, like, uh, uh, various other religions. It wasn't just Buddhism, you know, but that, yeah. was, that was heavy. But I think yeah. part of the colors are part of the tattoo, and he was into magic, and so part of the ingredients of the colored ink was from getting ingredients from the Dalai Lama. It could be. That's possible. I mean, you know, I, I don't know, but that sounds sounds good. Sounds like something you would do, yeah. And, you know, it turns out, you know, well, you see that now we're back to the point about, you know, the ghetto and how dangerous it was and how nobody would go there and all of that. And it gets to the fact that, um, you know, all these highly creative people, many of them now considered geniuses, were around at that time. And so also you got like Tyler... And uh, Klaus Oldenburg, who's pretty um, obviously well-known artist, so we're talking about major artists that came out of there. And like you say, Heine played with uh, with uh, jazz dramas for a lot of famous uh, uh, jazz musicians. He played everything. He played he played the horn. He played the piano. Played the drums. He played a lot of different instruments. And he was a multi-talented, you know. Now, you see, when I was uh, over at the, uh, I went to this print show because Tyler did prints, and there was a show, kind of a retrospective from the Uranian phallistry of uh, Tyler's prints at Printed Matter, the, uh, the bookstore. And the, the person who runs it is, is a son of uh, uh, Shulman. And Shulman was one of the people that started banging a can. Now, when I went over to this show, I went there with a person by the name of Keith Patchell. And Keith knows a lot about music, music theory. He had gone to... Uh, uh, Juilliard, um, and he also connected because he had, um, you know, he was into astrology. Not, he, he wasn't really into astrology, but he was into Mars and Venus. Like he did a Mars ensemble. Uh, uh, he did. Uh, he worked with the uh, uh, Haydn Planetarium. He did the uh, when they were, NASA was doing the thing over there with the trip to Mars. Uh, Keith was one of the people that. Uh, you know, created music for the show, probably the first person to create music for the show at the Hayden Planetarium. But anyway, the point that I'm getting to is he saw this piece of paper on top, because I've tried to ask many people about Tyler, and everybody just thought it was like kind of bang on a can and noise. But the reality is Keith looked at that, and he said, that's like, that's like an orchestration. That's, 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 that's like a musical symphony or something. He just saw all these, to me, it was like scratches on a page. And so he wrote a whole long article about this, uh, about Tyler in this tattoo book, which I'm desperately trying to get finished. So if anybody out there wants to help finish a book, uh, I'm desperate in need of help. But he wrote this article about Tyler, and he compares him with uh, John Cage and that whole form of music. So the music he was doing at the time was much more sophisticated than anybody sort of realized. And so um, I've got to get this book published. But... Uh, he talks about, uh, you know, and I hooked him up with a lot of people, like Barbara Moore, who, run, who runs this Fluxus Museum, Bound and Unbound, and the people that knew Tyler. And Tyler, his problem is he was kind of a difficult guy, and he smoked and drank a lot, smoked a lot of pot, and drank a lot in that. So he's kind of boisterous and difficult to be around. 
And he wasn't the hoi polloi, because the people at the Judson Church were like, uh, you know, Jim Dine, Oldenburg, whose, you know, family came from Sweden. He was a diplomat. And, um, and, um, he, uh, I, got, I just got a mailman at my door. So the diplomats, and then also, um, uh, getting mail, so it's kind of interrupting the flow here. But anyway, um. So Tyler, or, 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 uh, that whole 60s Judson Church thing, which really kind of bred the whole kind of thing into which Ginsburg, all of those people from the 60s were around that. But that's where Tyler also played his music, sold his prints in front of him like that. So there's that whole relationship. So his connection to history has never been pulled together yet and expounded on. And it's really, I'm hoping to kind of bring that out. Because it turns out, like you say, the whole business with uh, with uh, uh, Tom is, yes, it's ghetto and all of that, but the whole area was filled with these people, went on and made immense contributions within the world of art. Yeah, exactly. Or culture, you know, they Harry seeded, Smith. They seeded a lot of things, you know, they seeded things. Yeah. You know, they seeded the, the beginning of things, like DeVita seeding, like bringing fine art into tattooing, you know. Yes. Up until that time, I mean, he wanted, that was... That was one of his main objectives. Like he always used to tell me, we have to educate people. We have to show them something better than what they're used to, you know. And uh, he would push the design, you know, so that it would be more, uh, more artistically done, you know, rather than the old cartoon things that the old World War II tattoo artists used to do, you know. The funny, jokey things, you know, Davida wouldn't do. Davida wouldn't do hot stuff and... You know, he wouldn't do the monkey show and the <laughs> asshole and all that. But he would do hot stuff. So if you went in there yeah, to get a hot stuff, he would say, well, I won't do hot stuff, but I got his grandpa here in the wall. So I got this big Japanese demon uh, who's like the godfather or the grandfather of hot stuff. So he would talk yeah, to the guy yeah. into getting like a Japanese dragon or something. Yeah, right, 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 right. He was doing Japanese uh, art. He was uh, working off the you know, using part, parts of Japanese art, I think before Ed Hardy was, but maybe around the same time, maybe Hardy was doing it at the same time as well, you know, but DeVito was doing it before he knew Hardy. He was, uh, you know, bringing Japanese artwork into his stuff. Well, you know, it's you know, kind of interesting. Not only that, I mean, I mean, he brought everything into it. He brought Indian things into it. That's he right. brought Chinese things into it, you know. Right. His instruction card was written in five different languages. His wow. tattoo instruction card, you know. Never heard he would that bring, before. like, Czechoslovakian designs in it. Really? He was using tribal designs. American Indian tribal designs, I remember he used. I mean, he... He, he was using sewer covers from India to do abstract tribal tattoos. And gargoyles yeah. from buildings. Exactly. Yeah, and, and, and designs from buildings, you know. And, and yeah. he would bring all, all kinds of things. You know, he, he was working sort of... In a sense, uh, for one of a better word, uh, he was collaging things right. into works of art, you know. He was making collages and, you, and making his tattoo designs out of collage. Now, you bring up a very important point that took me a long time to find out. And actually, you helped me find it out. But let's take the, um, the, uh, the Japanese before Hardy. So if we look at the fact that uh, he had hooked up with Cliff Raven... Prior in like I believe '71 for sure at the around the folk art museum show, and uh, Raven uh, was also became respected and known for his Japanese oriented work. Yeah, 
right? So I wonder right. if Tom influenced uh, Raven. Raven came out of Chicago, out of Phil Sparrow. So I wonder if Tom influenced him with the Japanese thing, or Raven influenced him with the Japanese thing. It's an interesting he question. Always, he, always, he, always, he always gave the credit to Raven. Uh, for the Japanese I, I, always, I said that I said that Davida started the tribal thing before Raven did, but he said that it was Raven that was the one that inspired him to start using tribal things. So, you know, that's what Tom said. Well, I think uh, actually with the tribal thing, that's also what Leo Zuoletta says. But there is also, outside of tribal, there's this kind of like uh, modern primitive sort of uh, demon-looking drawings that, uh, that Tom did and Raven did. And it took me a long time to find out who was more influenced on that particular point. And it turns out that Tom influenced Raven with those drawings. It could be. It could very well be. I mean, you know, I mean, so artists when, uh, work off of one another. That's the way we work, right? I mean, yeah, and they were both sharing, know. and they were both geniuses, and they both shared uh, yeah. aesthetics. Yes. So you're probably right yeah, about the I tribal, mean, because the tribal thing, although uh, Zuoletta came later, obviously, he came more like in the... Uh, he, when, yeah, work, yeah came, Working with Hardy. Like when Hardy did yeah, the book, he, Modern... He, yeah. Yeah, so Davida actually influenced uh, Raven on those sort of primitive type because there was a guy called uh, Larry Copeland who used to come to the Tattoo Society, and he had some of those sort of demon-esque kind of uh, uh, drawings, and I think they were done by Raven. But, uh, you know, God, I wish these people, I wish I knew what I know now and those people were still around because there's a lot of questions. But, yeah. uh, wow. but and Tom also did like Roses Without Outlines, uh, yellow spider webs, just things that were unheard of at that time. Yeah, he, he'd do, he would do entire tattoos with a shader. He would, he would do the whole tattoo with a shader. The lines, he would he'd put the lines down with a shader. He would shade with a shader and put the color in the shader. <laughs> he, did, he didn't all, always do that. In fact, he, he did it occasionally, you know, but I mean, he, he would do that, but not too often. I mean, usually he'd use a liner and then a shader. And back in those days, what we had, what we had to work with, was a six needle liner and a six needle flat shader. That's all we had. That was it. That was that. That was what was going around. There were no magnums. There were no pipe three needles or five needles or like any of those stuff. It was a six needle liner and there was a five needle or six needle flat shader. That's what we worked with. That was it. And uh, so you know, he used that shader, uh, and then the the, the since I started tattooing, what, in the very early 70s, 72, 3, something like that. And uh, the, the magnum didn't come along until quite later, like maybe three, four years later, I think. I don't know, maybe some people are using them, I don't know, but I know we weren't. And Tom had his ear to the ground pretty much because he was getting a lot of information from Hardy because they became friends, you know. So, uh, was he you know, Hardy would know. Did Tom ever, Tom met Sailor Jerry, right, or did he not? He went to Hawaii with when Malone was no, there. Tom, no, Tom never met Sailor Jerry. Okay, never so Malone him. took over uh, Sailor Jerry's shop, but but exactly the only time Tom went to Hawaii was when uh, Malone had the shop. Yeah, that's when he went. Yeah, he went to, went to visit Malone, and I can't remember what occasion it was, but uh, he did go there to uh, Hawaii and visited. Uh, I think uh, he was not much here. Late in the, in the, what, like in the nineties, 
Malone called me up and asked me to take over his shop for a couple of weeks. He was going to do something. And unfortunately, well, fortunately, I mean, I had business in India at the time, so I was traveling back and forth. And I had to turn him down, but I always regret that. You know, that I had a chance to work in Malone's shop. He wanted me to come out, and I just couldn't do it, you know, because I was, I think I was on my way to India, you know, at the time. But, but uh, yeah, I think Tom may, may have been out there twice. If I'm not mistaken, I know he went to California, he went to the Queen Mary uh, convention, and I know he went to Hawaii one time, at least one time. Oh, so he was at the Queen Mary. I think he was. Wow. Yeah. That was Hardy. Yeah, well, it wasn't Hardy's convention. It was, I think it was, wasn't it Yurku? Didn't Yurk, wasn't it David Yurku? I'm not sure. Yeah, Yurku, I think, was the guy's hmm. name. He did the early on, the first conventions, you know. Of course, now they're a dime a dozen, you know. They're everywhere. But I think Dave Yerku was the one that organized the convention. A nickel for a, for a, a baker's dozen. <laughs> and what about, uh, was he tattooed by Paul Rogers on his leg? Who, Tom? Yeah. Uh, uh, Paul tattooed, I think Paul, I don't know that Paul ever tattooed Tom. Okay. Huck did, but Paul tattooed me. Uh, he tattooed uh, an eagle on my arm. Really? Tell us and, about uh, that. He, he, well, we all, uh, me and Freddie Clouston and uh, and Tom, took a bus ride down to Atlantic City to Ernie Carafa's shop because Paul was up from uh, Florida visiting Ernie Carafa. Uh, because the way Ernie Carafa got started was through Paul Rogers. Paul had a tattoo shop in the neighborhood that, uh, that Ernie grew up in. And uh, it may have been Atlantic City because that's where Ernie's shop was. So we got word from Ernie, that, uh, or from Paul, one of the two, that uh, Paul was coming up to visit Ernie. So we took a, I remember we took a bus all the way down there to Atlantic City and we spent the day with Paul Rogers and Ernie Carafa. And uh, that was, uh, I actually have a, a photograph on my Instagram of me Paul Rogers, Freddie Cluson, and Tom DeVito when I was like just a kid and DeVito was like 40 years old or whatever. Paul was in his 60s, I think, at the time. And that, that was taken at Ernie Carafa's shop. It was, it was one of the first Instagram pictures that I that I posted. But I, I, I asked Paul if he would tattoo me. And, and uh, he was he wouldn't do the lines. He wouldn't. Tom did the lines because Paul said he was too shaky. So Tom did the lines, and then Paul filled it in, showed us how to fill it in. And then we were buying machines from, from Paul Rogers at the time, and he was giving us, giving us instructions on how to take care of the machines that he was building, you know, how to maintain them and whatnot. He would do it all, everything with a pocket knife, you know? <laughs> really? Well, uh, yeah. well, that used to be early American. Everybody, uh, and Canadian, everybody had a pocket knife. I had a pocket knife when I was a kid. Everybody had a knife. Yeah, me too. So did my dad. I got one now. Yeah. I have one now. Well, you better I'm be careful. I'm my pocket right, right now, man. Is the yeah. blade is the blade longer than your four fingers? No, no, no. It's just a little one, you know. But I use it, <laughs> uh, you know, two dozen times a, uh, yeah, yeah, a month. I use it all the time. And yeah. what's your Instagram uh, name? At Nick Bubash. B u b h b u a s h. B u b a s h. That's right. boy, U-B-A-S-H. There you go. Yeah. And you yeah, tattoo in Pittsburgh. Tat 
That was my tattoo handle. Yeah, yeah, Pittsburgh. And you might be moving to uh, Chicago. That's what I'm in the middle of doing right now. My the house, I sold my house here in Pittsburgh, and uh, I have a, a bunch of, with the last four days, we've been packing the place up, and Friday we move it, not to Chicago, but to a warehouse, and then uh, on the 23rd, I'm going to go to Chicago and look for a place. And are you going to tattoo in Chicago? Yeah, I'm going to have a part-time gig at the uh, Great Lakes Tattoo Shop with uh, Nick Colella. And uh, Mario Disa works there. Nick Colella owns the place. It's called Great Lakes. And are, are you going to keep your shop in Pittsburgh? In, yeah, well, no, I sold that shop uh, a while ago. The place I've been working at, I sold it like 10 years ago. Okay. Well, I've just been working there like part-time. Yeah. And what was it called? It, just, it was just called Route 60 Tattoo because it was on Route 60. I always believed if you had a business, name it after the street it's on, you know. Right. <laughs> so people knew where it was, <laughs> you know. And so uh, you're going to go there and basically work on fine art because you, you've really established I'm yourself. you work on fine art. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I do. I have a, I have a, an ongoing sculpture gig that I do. I was really trained, and when I went to school, I trained was trained as a figure sculptor, and uh, so I have a sculpture commission that that is ongoing. So I do a lot of that, and I also do a lot of drawing, and and uh, you know I have shows and, and whatnot, and things like that. So, so you you grew up with drawing, and your mother sort of pushed that. Who was your sculpture influence? Uh, my sculpture influence was my dyslexia. And you had some you know, professor or teacher or something that really inspired you, right? I had a uh, teacher when I went to the academy in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania Academy, uh, by the name of uh, Peter Payone. Yeah, he was very, very inspirational. He was, he was, uh, believed that uh, as an artist you shouldn't specialize I mean, of course, you're going to specialize in one thing, but you should actually do everything. Uh, you know, you should be able to do everything. You should be able to do sculpture. You should learn it all. You know, he was one of those guys, you know, kind of like a Renaissance guy. Except he but didn't. he's primarily a painter, but he did sculpture as well and graphics and, you know, you name it, he did it, you know. Yeah, I'm very impressed with so, your sculpture. His sculpture, well, yeah, I studied it for a long time, you know, like figure sculpture. A lot of India uh, influence, right? Yeah, well, I was, uh, yeah, I was, uh, uh, when I was in school, I was influenced by the Indian sculpture because I had done the human figure so many times, I got so sick of doing humans, I started doing animals, and then I started combining the two things because they're both mammals, you know, I did mammals, combining uh, mammals and the human figure and sometimes insects. And then I sort of put geometry to that, you know, so I came up with a kind of a thing. But the thing that was speaking to me was the uh, Indian art because their deities were half human, half animal, you know. Right. So, so when you say India, you're not talking North American Indian, you're talking India. I'm talking about India, yeah. Yeah, yeah India. Yep. Inja. Inja. Yep. Inja. Yeah. And so... Uh, I was just there a couple of weeks ago, yeah. Really, yeah. And also, yeah. like, back to tattooing for a minute, I know that uh, uh, you answered the question about Paul Rogers, but I know also with Tom, uh, you know, Jack Rudy did the skulls around his neck, uh, uh, Huck Spaulding did his back, because one of the few big back pieces that Spaulding did, but it's absolutely incredible, 
really a fine yeah. tattoo. Uh, uh, Cliff Owens, uh, Zeke Owens did a lot of his chest. Uh, Hardy did the uh, the bonsai tree on the side. Malone did the bats on his knees. Uh, a lot of them, uh, uh, a lot of his legs were filled in by uh, by um, Hardy. He did, he did one of those little. Yeah, I, got, I did a uh, I did a, a, a pinup on his back, on uh, Davida's back, and I covered up a dragon with the with the pinup. And I sure wish I had a picture of that damn thing because it came out so nicely. You know, it was kind of a, a shot in the dark because I knew I was going to really cover up this dragon with the pinup, but I tried it anyway, and she wound up looking like she was tattooed. And, uh, and, you know, with the dragon. And there were things sticking out of the, you know, they couldn't cover the whole thing up. There were things sticking out, you know, parts of the dragon. You know, but it turned out to be a really nice tattoo. You know, he really liked it. But, you know, you bring up uh, an interesting point about cover-ups not being cover-ups. Because Tom was still the only person I know of that was doing, like, the tribal, the black tribal, over top of uh, the old faded tattoos underneath. So he would keep some of the old tattoo underneath and take the tribal to go around, so it really became an integration and a collage, and so you would have this old, let's say blue or green, that would be like this really beautiful soft color over top with a black that was new. Yeah. And it was yeah. incredible. Well, yeah, well, some of his favorite things were, like those walls where so many different posters have been pasted up and ripped down and pasted up and ripped down, you know what I mean? Or you've seen those things all over the place. And yeah, they're talking they're about street graffiti posters. Yeah, yeah, you know, and then the, somebody would come along and tag it with some spray paint, and like, he loved those things. And the other thing that he really loved were like packing crates that had like stamps and numbers and ripped off tags and things all over them, you know, things that were, had traveled around the world or gone to Europe or, you know, like, with, and, you know, those things he liked too. He liked the, the, the pattern of the, uh, the wood, you know, the plywood patterns, which right. he used a lot in his work. He used the plywood patterns, and uh, uh, you know, so yeah, he liked the, he really liked that collage kind of layered thing. You know, was was re- really attractive to him. I think it inspired a lot of what he did and how he did it. You know, hmm. so he was always looking. I mean, when I was a kid, when I was hanging with him as much as I could, you know, because I always had to work to keep myself alive, but any time I got a chance to be there, I was there. But we would take journey, we would take journeys out into the city and look at stuff. And, you know, he would stop and point out various walls, various things that were collaged and broken apart, put back together, and, like, ruined things that were really quite beautiful that I probably would have normally just walked right by, you know, but he had his eyes open, you know, to all kinds of things that were... He really gave me a hell of a good education. I'm telling you. And when I would say, like, I would be looking at something, he would point out as a beautiful object or a beautiful, like, composition of some sort on the wall that happens, like, uh, you know, serendipitously, or uh, if that's the correct word, or whatever, you know. I'd say, well, I don't really like that. I don't think that, that looks good. And he used to say to me, you're not advanced enough. <laughs> that's what he used to, used to say. What? <laughs> he, he used to say I wasn't advanced enough to like it. Wow. I wasn't. I didn't know enough to actually know to like it. That's why I didn't like it. It wasn't because it wasn't good. It was because. I didn't know. Well, in terms of I Tom, didn't know any better. in terms of Tom <laughs> being uh, kind of like uh, art and fine art, I had never really gone to art school. The only art school connection that he had is he used to be a, a model, like at SBA. So he would be a, a, a model right, for the drawing classes. Yeah. 
but he, he did, a, in terms of yeah, the abstract expressionist, he used to go to the Cedar Bar. Yeah, he would go to the Cedar Bar, and he used to, to tell stories of hanging out and remembering, uh, like, you know, uh, Franz Klein and... Uh, Jackson Pollock. You know, Willem de Kooning right. and Jackson Pollock, you know, being there and talking about things, and, you know, and stuff like that. I don't know that he was friends with them, but he was in that atmosphere and made it a point of being among them, you know, among those people, you know. Well, I mean, so he was influenced by that, that, that ilk. Well, the one thing about knowing those people, first of all, there's kind of like the the the, the being kind of gassed up a little bit in the, the, the flow of the booze, because it, Cedar Bar was a small bar. It wasn't like a football field. So to be in that room, you were all sort of like touching so, shoulders almost. It was not a huge yeah, bar. Yeah, right, right. And it, it really... Over, be, off, off, uh, yeah, it was over in the university place. Yeah, university right. place. And it became famous yeah. because so many of the artists that were there at the time who were not known went on, and like you said, they became the big ones of the uh, 20th century, abstract expressionist exactly. artists. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so he was part of that. Although Tom, you know, Tom's always au contraire. And Tom would consider right, himself right. a folk artist, and he would show with the street artists around Washington Square Park, when Washington Square Park, which probably still has, you know, where you go there and you have all the, what people would think of as the Sunday painters hanging up all their art. Yeah, and yeah. Tom would, uh, I mean, he was proud of the fact that he was showing with all those street artists, or artists that showed on the street at the time, not street artists that painted on the street, but showed on the street around Washington Square. And he was proud to be part of that milieu. Right, exactly, yeah. And I think he considered tattooing to be a folk art as well, didn't he? Yes, he did, yeah. You know, he you always know? said that's what it was, a folk art. So that's that au contraire factor again. Here he is hanging around yeah. with people went on and changed the 20th century in fine art and in tattooing and brought fine art into tattooing like Ed Hardy. And he was a big part yeah. of it and inspiration for it, but he's a folk artist. But, but he was, he was, yeah, but he insisted that it was a folk art. Yeah, yeah. yeah I know. He was like, yeah, he had his own way of thinking that. Yeah. Sure. Mr. Au contraire. Yeah. yeah. He used to come up with the best DM things, I'm telling you. I had, I wish I would have written things down, you know, but of course, at the time, you know, you're in the middle of it, and you don't even think to do it, you know. My father, when I used to talk to my father about all these guys, my father used to say to me, you got to write this stuff down, you know, I mean, this is like hard to believe, I would tell him stories. He, he, he used to relate it to Damon Runyon, the writer Damon Runyon, mm. who uh, wrote uh, uh, gangster novels at the time, for some reason, like the Davida scene and all those people reminded him of Runyon, you know. But he used to say, you got to write this stuff down. This is really funny stuff, you know, good stuff, you know. Great stories, you know. Well, the interest yeah, we had a lot of fun. I mean, the interesting thing about Tom, I mean, I guess, like even when, uh, what do you call those little uh, Japanese or Chinese, I guess they're Chinese, the little sort of taggers, those playful little baby taggers, what do you call those? You know, that have know. The, 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 the round spots like Dalmatians? Oh, your poo dogs. Yes. Are you, are you talking about your poo dogs? Yeah, now he got uh, one of those, it's I think. Imaginary ones. Yes. Imaginary ones. Yes. Now, I think he, yeah, got, he got one of those from Hardy, but I think uh, he made Hardy change the whole thing up, so it became the Tom look. Yeah, right, yeah. I forget whether he put spots on it or something, but anyway, it was it was totally different. than It was the same sort of imagery, but decorated in a way that was only Tom. Yeah, it would be Tom's way of going, yeah. 
The other amazing thing yeah. about Tom is uh, you don't remember who did the dragon that he covered, right? Uh, that I do not remember. I wonder if it was a Moskowitz, because I, I know he was connected to the Moskowitzes. It could have been, you know, it could have been. Because I, I mean, I think he, you know, he went to Charlie Wagner for a tattoo. Oh, he did? One time. Oh, yeah, and uh, he got up to the front of the line, and uh, he told Charlie Wagner he wanted a stall or something like that, or a rose or whatever, and Charlie told him, I'm only doing ships today, or I'm only doing whatever. He says, I'm not doing roses today so he didn't get tattooed because he didn't want a rose or he didn't want a ship he wanted a rose or skull or something you know but he did go to Wagner's the studio you know and tried to get tattooed by him because the other thing about Tom is is that um, especially for that period of time you know a lot of tattoo artists had a lot of tattoos actually not that many tattoos it was interesting at that time that he was as covered as he was because a lot of people didn't get that much coverage at that period of time. You could count the number of people in America that had sort of body suits. And, um, yeah, very, very, very few, yeah. And Tom had all really sophisticated, well-done tattoos. His tattoos were really amazing. Yeah, he seeked out the best people. He really yes, did. He did. Yeah, he seeked out the best people. So, yeah, he's gone on and really influenced a lot. Now, like I say, I really respect the fact that uh, Hardy is, uh, you know, pushing Tom's art. See, the other thing Hardy did was in terms of, like, uh, creating the fine art factor, other than doing his books Tattoo Time and that, which I think started in 83, but he covered a lot of sort of art in that, punk, art, whatever, and uh, didn't cover Spiderweb, which he should have. But anyway... Um, you know, it's part of that whole kind of influence about the whole fine art. And people really, you know, people now think they kind of invented the whole fine art. See, the other thing about Tom is, it's true, he wasn't really a drawer, but he was an expand outside the, the lines kind of guy. So if you had a tattoo from him and with the lines, he would expand the, the swirls and the drawing freehand around the tattoo that you got to make it bigger. Right, exactly. Yeah, he would do a lot of that kind of thing. You know. He would make the scratches off the uh panther. You know, he would do a panther on somebody he would do the scratches you know line scratches from the panther's claws like halfway up the guy's arm onto his shoulder you know like, and he was he would do all kinds of crazy things you know and also for that period of time he was tattooing that uh, mexican guy what was his name carlos where he did the big uh, panther on the back yeah i can't remember carlos but yeah, and the whole possibly. that whole tattoo was outside of the outline was all kind of like loosely shaded in like a drawing. Yeah, he used to do that. He would like put he would he would put whips of things. He would like whip black or whip red, you know, like things around them. Like and put kind of put atmosphere or motion lines around things, you know. Yeah, he wipe a guy's forearm on it for thirty bucks. He'd like I get up his whole forearm. Covered, yeah. yeah, and so like also like I say with that panther and that whole freehand sketch looking inside, that was highly unusual at that period of time too because people they did outlines and fill-ins. Right. You know, you do the outline. I mean, one thing with Polito was he worked out this whole sort of form of flash where he would do it where there'd be a lot of color but as minimal as possible so you could do tattoos faster. Yeah, but, oh, Polito was like a you know he did a big butterfly with a rose on my arm. Took him four minutes. Well, I saw him. I, I saw him at one of Davida's. That would do a show over at Mike Rubendahl's 
uh, uh, place, uh, Tony Polito was there. It was, uh, and I went up to him and I said, uh, Mr. Polito, I said, I know you don't remember me. I said, but I came to your shop one day with Tom DeVita and I think, uh, I can't remember who else was with us. Uh, Keith, uh, I, I, I don't, I don't recall, but anyway, he did a, a, a butterfly with a rose on my back of my arm. And I said, he did this. And I showed it to him. I said, I think it took you about 10 minutes. And he said, four. Okay. Cause he was also famous. <laughs> he was famous for the seven, seven minute tattoo. He would have, what was it? His, yeah. nep his, his nephew or whatever would do the outline. What was his name? And then he would do the fill-ins. So it'd be like yeah. one, one guy would speed through the outline and then, Tony would speed through the fill-ins. Oh, they were they were rapid, man. They and he had a line out the door too, you know. Yeah, and I he mean, you do a whole news, you do a whole pinup in twenty minutes. Yeah. Whole pinup, they'd wipe out your whole arm with it. Yeah, it was way different. And Tony Polito used to say, "He said I'm not in this to win any kind of goddamn art contest. He said I'm in it to make money. That's what he used to say. Well, <laughs> make money, he did." And he did. Yeah, he always had a big Cadillac, you know. That's right. Every year he bought a brand new Cadillac. Yep, he, he used yep. to do the fireworks, too, on uh, on New Year's Eve. I went out there with Westwood one time and watched him blow out the uh, the fireworks. And he, in his apartment, he had this train that ran around the top of the living room, you know, like, Ooh, you know, one of those kids' trains? <laughs> yeah. And great Italian food. Yep, yep. But, real Italian, that's for sure. And then after the, uh, you know, 1961, when tattooing became uh, illegal, city bylaw was passed. I mean, you know, the Moskowitzes and a lot of the artists left. But Polito stayed and he tattooed. Uh, Angelo from the Bronx, he tattooed. So, you know, they were some of the hardcore guys that kind of, you know, held and maintained the, uh, the craft and the art and kept it going. And yep. did you ever yep. know Don and Non? Uh, heard of him, but never, never met him. Yeah, it was like this old hippie guy. He lived at uh, Tom's. I, oh, uh, you mean Don the flute player? Yeah, Don the flute player. That's right. Oh yeah, I knew him real well. Yeah, oh, I knew him real well. Yeah, yeah. He lived up. He lived in Tom's for years. Yeah, yeah. He lived upstairs on the third floor in the, in the very back. You know, he used to come out and uh, yes. he kind of talked. And I talked like this. How you doing, Nick? You know, he was like that. He was kind of a real gentle, kind of a, you know, laughing kind of a guy. When he would go out, he would play uh, the flute. Yes. I think, or the, yeah, on the, on the, on, for money. But you know, he was also hooked up to banging a can, which really came out of Yale. And uh, was really, it's, it's, you know, become really a highly sophisticated sort of recognized art group. And um, yeah. I remember I videotaped him on uh, what he said was his eviction day. So I'm in there. It's this humble little room. All he owns is this little, you know, few clothes that he carried in his, uh, in this bag that he had. And he looks out the window and he says, "Today, our eviction day, is Mahatma Gandhi's birthday." And it was so, <laughs> it was so like philosophical and and so kind of yeah. like transcendental because he was being evicted. He had nowhere else to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was able to hook him up with uh, Jim Power, the Mosaic Man, and then he went out and lived with Jim for a while in uh, Woodstock, and they did like the Mile, the Mosaic, and Woodstock, and you know J Jim is like the, the Mosaic Man's covered the East Village, and uh, you know well loved, amazing. Also another really highly creative uh, person who hasn't really been acknowledged yet. There's a person now by the name of Adam. They came by. I did an interview with them the other day. They're doing a documentary on Jim. 
this kid is finishing up his NYU Tisch School of the Arts, and this is his uh, graduation piece. But yeah, it, you see, and there you have Don banging a can. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Every and yourself, and you know, you you went on, you become an eminent uh, sculptor. A good, and the other thing is, you're all New York Acker winners. So you got Davida's a yep. New York Acker winner. Uh, Boobash is a New York Acker winner. Mike McCabe is uh, who was broken in by uh, uh, R.O. Tyler, and you have uh, uh, Boobash is an Acker winner. Tom. So basically, you know, the idea with the New York Ackers is to build this whole sort of uh, creative community, which is kind of a recreation of like the art from the past, because New York is being gentrified so much and it's all disappearing. So I created this sort of like art kind of uh, collective, which has become now going into a seven year. And it was the idea was to, to gather up the whole kind of creative community, like the person who had the venue, which allowed art to happen. So it's a reconstruction in a way, an abstract reconstruction of the whole sort of creative community as it existed. And a lot of those people, and Tom and that, are finally, they're getting their kind of recognition about their major contribution. And it's kind of like, in my archives, I have a number of people, which kind of, I kind of call them kind of like the Van Gogh syndrome. It's like 30 years or... You know, long after they're dead, they're starting to be recognized. And, uh, you know, David is one of them. R.O. Tyler is one of them. And, uh, you know, a number of people like that that need to be, you need to remember the name because, and you need to put them in this collective, this community, because people in the future, since the communities don't exist anymore, finding those connections and those nexuses can be hard to do. So if you have this New York Anchor Award, which puts all of those pieces in place. I didn't do the famous people. I don't need, you know, Patty Smith does not need me. By, by reconstructing this sort of abstract avant-garde, I'll call it avant-garde community, it means in the future people can start coming and joining the dots. And so when you go through these bio booklets, which I'm creating, you can go Davida, Tyler, Boobash, uh, Stanley Steller, the photographer. Stanley Steller is like this gay guy who's really kind of an un recognized uh, uh, tattoo photographer because he, tat he, he photographed tattoos right from the 70s and on up. So it's really kind of this history needs to be preserved, needs to be put in a place where people can get to it because if we don't save our own history, who will? And, and it isn't about saving the, the history of an individual because if you do that, then you just have an individual. You need the community to see what the whole thing is. Right, to see the whole thing, yeah, because... Yeah, everything works uh, in a community, you know. Yeah, well, it's it like when you, when you look at Tom's, I mean, all of a sudden you had Slugs close by, you had Harry Smith, and, and you know, all the people that we had gone through, and you'd mixed it up because you'd also worked with somebody like his commercialist Peter Max, who did like the Beatles thing, the Yellow Submarine, and all of that. So there was really a magic crucible where all these things really got sort of molded and, and, and kneaded together like bread, and it all kind of became like instead of seven-grain bread... It was a hundred grain Lower East Side magical cauldron. Right, yeah. And you know, by doing these books, yeah. Bill Heine's also part of it. So I'm hoping that with these books and the Acker Awards and like that, New York Ackers, that people will be able to look back and see and recognize that, you know, there was Bill Heine, who he was. You could see Lionel Zippern, who he was. So when you look at this quilt, all of a sudden, if you start, you know, researching those pieces, you'll run into all those nexus and connections. You know, Bill Heine, Rosing Orbenthal, the writer, the books. 
And that's what we need because this American history is being obliterated. And if we don't save this American history, it won't be. And the fact is, like you say with DeVita, in terms of like very few artists, a lot of them don't know who he is, and this whole beginning of 20th century fine art tattoo connection, DeVita is a big part of the beginning of that. Yeah, a lot of people don't know. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of people, uh, yeah, they don't know where it came from. It's our job. And, you know, if you don't, yeah, we need to know our own history. You need, need to know your history to be properly informed, you know, and, and, and in order to follow the continuum, you know. I mean, there's a continuum that you need to follow in order to get anywhere. My uncle used to tell me that. And if you come from nowhere, you get nothing. You know, so you have to, it's, it's good to know where you come from and what happened before you. Because you use all that stuff to make it go forward, you know. People are doing that without knowing it. Right. But it's so much better to know it. I agree. You know, so you can, uh, you know. Was that your uncle, the violin player? Yeah, yeah. Tell us about him. Well, he was a a child prodigy violinist. He was playing violin in front of the symphony or with the symphony, you know, as... I guess more of a novelty than anything because he was so young. Uh, you know, they would bring him out and he would play and and uh, he, he um, then uh, went, went on. He was going to go to Juilliard, but his mother wouldn't let him get that far away from him. They grew up in Al- he grew up in Altoona, Pennsylvania, which at the time was the fastest growing city in the country because of the Industrial Revolution. And, you know, he was in eight years old in the 20s when he was playing this this violin, you know, this crazy violin that he could play. And uh, he wound up going to Penn State, and ultimately, I think, ultimately he just stopped playing the violin. But I think that happens to a lot of those people. You know, they get pushed and pushed and pushed, and uh, eventually they just break. You know, they stop. But he also had a passion in world history and became a professor of world history is what he did. But he never stopped talking about music, never stopped listening to jazz, Never stopped listening to classical music. You know, he was, he was still loved music very much. You know, but he was a very wise man. You know, he's a very intelligent man. You know, he's uh, so let's the kind step- of guy that you didn't talk, you didn't talk to him. He talked to you. You know. So let's step back for a minute here and look at this whole fine 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 art nonsense. I mean, you know, we sort of got the whole business with the Vita and the fine art mixture with that, and the Hardy and the you know the Cedar Bar and all the people that Davida was around. But, you know, like I did the Tattoo Society, and in the tattoo world, there's always been the mixture between kind of like the king and the bottom. You know, you kind of had criminals, military, and you also had kings and the aristocracy. It was kind of like that big split. And so when I did the Tattoo Society, I had people that were members, like, for example, like David Hayes, whose mother was Mary Sisler. Mary Sisler was one of the really important patrons to the Museum of Modern Art. She brought in the Duchamps and stuff like that. And David was an intellectual, and I sort of found out uh, an interesting part about him was is that I had the uh, Dimonil uh, Foundation contact me because they were trying to get a hold of David, and the only reference to David was, he was also an astrologer, was that there was a long article in the New Yorker magazine, and I was mentioned in that as the president of the Tattoo Society, so they contacted me, because it turns out that David was influential philosophically to Jasper Johns in the beginning because they were all kids at that period of time. 
And so that's an overstep. And we had Daphne Hellman who used to play the harp, uh, you know, the classical harp at my tattoo society. She had this sort of jazz thing that called Hellman's Angels. And her grandfather started a bank on Wall Street, I think the Siemens or something like that. So at the Tattoo Society, and we had a few gangsters and bad guys and homeless people and whatever. Uh, so we had kind of that whole spectrum as well as the Tattoo Society. But if we step back and we want to talk about the sophistication of fine art and tattooing, if I look at you and your father, your father was one of the people that worked with uh, Salk, the guy that created the cure for polio. And your father, who was a microbiologist at the time, was getting his uh, master's degree at Pittsburgh because Pittsburgh needed a Jew. So they brought in this guy called Jonas Salk, and he was a guy. So tell us about that story. So now we got the cure for uh, polio. <laughs> you know, I, you know, just uh, move, you know, packing things up, and I found a, a bag of uh, baby clothes that uh, I that my mother gave me that had been a gift from Mr. and Mrs. Doctor and Mrs. Stalk, when I was first born, he sent uh, baby clothes for us. They, I guess it was probably Mrs. Stalk that did it. Uh, but uh, I, I, I found them in the bag, and I thought they were underneath the table. And I thought, wow, hadn't thought about this for a long time. But yeah, my my dad was was actually the first guy that John Stalk, Stalk hired uh, at, in the polio vaccine research at the University of Pittsburgh, where the where the uh, vaccine was discovered, but uh, the way my dad uh, got in touch with Salk was he answered an ad in the newspaper. Jonas Salk put it in the newspaper that he needed a uh, microbiologist, so my father was going to get married soon, and he thought it might be a good idea to get a job. He was getting his master's degree in the GI Bill after the uh, World War II, and uh, he answered the ad, and he wound up uh, being on the, on the original team of, of six people that plus Jonas Salt that, that uh, ultimately uh, discovered the polio vaccine. Jonas Salt didn't give anybody any credit. So. See, the interesting thing I was going to point out about that is, is that the reason that Jonas Salk didn't get a Nobel Prize for his, for his you know, at that time curing of, uh, of polio is because the only guy who invented the polio vaccine was Jonas Salk, and all those scientists knows that it's a team. So by not mentioning anybody yeah. else, right? Yeah, that's yeah, that, uh, that that was uh, that was my dad's take on it anyway. But you know, and a lot of those, uh, a lot of the, the, the guys that worked with him wound up going to uh, the Salk uh, the Salk uh, Cancer Research Institute, in California. They continue to work for him, and uh, he always uh, kept asking my dad to come out and work with him. But my dad didn't want to relocate his family or whatever, you know. But but my father was never bitter about it or anything like that. He just uh, you know, he just, he did what he did, and my my old man was real pedestrian. You know, he was he was uh, you know wasn't after fame and glory. He was more like a nuts and bolts guy. You know. So the uh, point that I'm getting sort of a blue collar scientist. You know. <laughs> so I'm sort of trying to dispel yeah. this whole myth about tattooing just being kind of like a grungy underground thing. I mean, which part of it was, and I love that part as well. But it was also a really highly sophisticated. Uh, background to tattooing, of which we've talked about a lot on this this show, Clayton uh, Patterson show on Eight Ball Radio with Nick Bubash in Pittsburgh, getting ready to head to Chicago to become another famous artist. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's incredible the the vitality of tattooing, of which people have never gotten to. And uh, you know, yeah. I mean, they got to it a little bit with like Phil Sparrow. Uh, uh, 
with, with you know, being a university professor, dropped out in the middle age, got caught doing porno books and whatever. He left the profession of being a professor and became a tattoo artist, which he was happier about anyway. He was also a gay guy, which probably didn't work in his favor at that time with the Chicago uh, uh, University. And so, uh, but there really is a strong background stream, and Tom DeVita is a big part of that cultural change and that influence of fine art within tattooing. And it really, we haven't really grappled with that yet. I have to say one thing, you had a Hardy who kind of made the world educated about Tom and recognized Tom as his gatekeeper and changed his life. But you also later came along was like Chris Grasso, who kind of entered Tom, in, entered Tom into the more commercial world. And he kind of became, yeah, well, the, yeah. the, right? He became the person who sort of marketed Tom in the first way, in at least a sophisticated way. And he did that uh, Vice show uh, that, uh, that was about Tom. So the, the Vice TV show by Chris Grasso, I think it was by Chris, but anyway, he was instrumental in it. And yeah, he's the, the one who produced it. Yeah. He produced it. So slowly this stuff is trickling out. And i got to get this damn book finished. So if you know anybody who can help finish your damn book, I need it, because i got a lot of really amazing articles. I mean, we haven't even touched on uh, the contributions of people like Wes Wood and all of that, which is huge and unknown, because New York is still unknown. And the only thing that really sort of rises to the top are these sort of popish people that get on TV that everybody kind of knows and does flashy tattoos. But the whole guts of it, people don't know the damn history. Yeah, yeah. And, and you've got to know history. And you, yeah, Nick to... Boobash, other than being a New York Acker winner, you're also part of that history. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, I admit that fully. And, you know, you got a lot of Tom's tattoos, which are very interesting. Yeah, oh, yeah, I'm loaded, loaded with them. So, uh, anyway, we're getting ready to move on here, so we always end on a happy note. So, you're going to help us with the happy note, because, you know, what I used to do, I used to get a lot of these guys at my front door, I would take pictures of, I'd photograph in front of my door for years, and so a lot of, the, you know, because it's a front door and I was making people, you know, I put the 32 pictures in the window and make these young people famous in the neighborhood. And a lot of them were like, uh, you know, drug dealers. Some of them are gangsters, whatever. And some of them, a lot of them are good guys too. But so I had to make them smile. Otherwise I would have a window full of beefs. So the way to make, right. stop the beefs is, is just before I take the picture, I'd say, say pussy. So of course they would laugh and then wham, I'd take the picture. So that's the whole front right. door series, which is really an interesting collection, which I'm trying to bring to, uh, bring to the public's uh, recognition. Now I have a Magnum Foundation is doing a, I'm doing a talk with them at the Overthrow Boxing. It makes sense for me to be at a boxing gym and not uh, a museum. So it's like that's kind of perfect. But Magnum's a, it's a good connection. But uh, so we, we end up singing Happy Trails. Oh, I remember. Yeah. Yes. I've had a lot of interesting people singing Happy Trails at the end, at the end of the show. Yeah. So we all have a good laugh yeah. and it's a relaxer and we're leaving on a happy note. So we sing, happy trails to you until we meet again. We only know one verse. Happy trails to you until we meet again. So from this time until next time, people, this is Clayton Patterson signing off for 8-Ball Radio. And today we had the privilege, the honor, the essence of Nick Boobash on 8-Ball Radio. Thank you, Clayton. Thank you. We have Aiden here, and so. Great talking to you.
Oh, yeah, well, hope it's you. been fabulous talking to you, and hopefully we saved a little of this history. Hopefully it sounds great. Uh, you know, we do it on a cuff and a, and a smile, but we do it, and we're saving the history, and we're plowing forward into the future. Thanks, Nick. Forward, forward. <laughs> Always forward, never backwards. Okay. All right, see you later. All right. Yeah. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.